We are starting, however, in Surrey, where the Surrey Police Service Union says the majority of its members have absolutely no intention of joining the RCMP if the mayor of Surrey is able to stop that transition to a civic police force. And joining us to talk more about this is Darren Shepard, Surrey Police Union Executive. Thank you so much, Darren, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, this was, uh, from what I understand, it was a, a voluntary type survey. So what exactly uh, were members of the Surrey Police Union asked and how did this information come about? Um, well, leading up to the um, initiation of this, we had obviously heard uh, Mayor Locke indicate that her plan for the uh, reversal of this transition was to simply have uh, members of the SPS uh, switch over to the RCMP. Um, we all came from a variety of agencies, including the RCMP, but agencies all across the country and came to Surrey for a reason, uh, to build something new, to build something different and to build something better. And I, we thought it was important um, that um, we get the facts out there about how many people would actually be willing to go over to the RCMP. And as you can see, the results are overwhelmingly uh, that uh, 94% of us do not have any intentions of going to the RCMP. Did you find, or is the new mayor of Surrey, Mayor Locke, oversimplifying things in suggesting even that those positions would be available or that it would be an easy transition for members of the Surrey Police Service to go back or to go to the RCMP? Uh, very much so. It's a it's a complex process. There is... Uh, you know, a lot of things at stake, a lot of different uh, things that would have to be examined, including training, pensions, uh, differential salaries, uh, differential benefits. There's a lot involved in this. It isn't a simple process in any way, shape or form. And there's uh, pretty significant consequences for people that have moved back home to Surrey from places across Canada or moved back to Surrey where they have connections and family. Uh, that came here for that reason. They simply aren't interested in joining the RCMP and being posted either to Surrey or anywhere else the RCMP would choose to send them. What would it look like then? And again, overwhelming response to this. I think what was the number? 94% of the union members who made this declaration saying that they wouldn't be joining the RCMP. They would have no intention of doing that. So, and I know it's a, it's a what if scenario, but if this did, if the civic police force, the Surrey Police Service was halted, where would that leave the members that have already signed on? Uh, That's a great question because there are too many unknowns to say. Uh, Right now we don't believe that the transition will reverse. It's a provincial decision, not a municipal decision and there has been never any indication at all from the province that initiated this uh, transition or approve the initial request um, that they have any appetite to reverse it. So this was simply um, an, an acknowledgement of what Mayor Locke is putting forth uh, and our simple response to it. Um, individual members would have to make their choice as to where they went or what they did. But the overwhelming results, as you said, uh, 275 out of our 293 sworn uh, police officers have said that they have no intention of joining the RCMP. Uh, the officers then that, that didn't sign this, almost 20 officers that, that aren't included in that group then, do you know, are these officers that said they would be okay joining the RCMP or they simply didn't didn't sign the declaration or didn't make their intentions known? Uh, some indicated that they feared retribution from the RCMP should they sign it. 
Um, I was with the RCMP for 25 years. I have a lot of friends and people that I respect still there. However, in my uh, extensive experience with the RCMP, I can say that their concern is uh, is based in uh, you know past experiences and uh, traumas that they may have uh, experienced. So, um, other individuals had other reasons, and uh, but overwhelmingly, as I said, uh, with 94% of our membership indicating they have no desire to join the RCMP, uh, either in Surrey or anywhere else, the RCMP may post them. Uh, the results speak for themselves in that regard. Right. Uh, as as you being the, the union spokesperson, did you sign the declaration? Absolutely. Uh, and we'll talk a bit, if you can, about this isn't just saying as well that that you wouldn't, that members who have said this, that they have no intention of applying for or joining an RCMP detachment. This isn't just... Um, this isn't specific to Surrey, is it? It's the question was also if, if again, the Surrey Police Service didn't go forward, would you join uh, any police force? It might not be in Surrey. Was that was that made clear in this that we're not only talking about the Surrey detachment? Yes, uh, Surrey detachment or any other RCMP detachment or provincial headquarters, etc. So there is no appetite for our membership to go there. Uh, either amongst the members that have previously served with the RCMP or previously served with other municipal or provincial uh, police agencies. Uh, we, uh, I know that uh, this show and uh, the other shows on this station are hoping to check in with Mayor Brenda Locke and to get her comment on this. Have you or anybody with the union been able to meet with Mayor Brenda Locke and talk more about this and about some of your other concerns? Uh, no, we haven't had any official meetings with them yet. Uh, did see Mayor Locke at the uh, parade in Surrey on Saturday. Uh, a simple handshake, and that was uh, that was all we had time for before she was um, um, moved away by the RCMP. Um, I understand, obviously, she's coming in a new position. I'm sure she's incredibly busy, uh, but this being one of her um, mandates for her platform or her uh, election promises, I think it is important that... Uh, we do find the time to meet with each other. If she could make time in her busy schedule for us, we'd be happy to uh, go through some of the uh, facts that maybe she's not aware of. And um, regardless of whatever happens, uh, we do intend on working with the new mayor, uh, working with new council, and uh, explaining why Surrey Police Service is the right choice for the citizens of Surrey. How is it for you and the other union members right now kind of in this state where, like you said, this is a provincial decision? Mayor Lott campaigned on this and campaigned on a promise of keeping the RCMP, but it is going to come down to the public safety minister and the final decision coming from Mike Farnworth. What is it like being a member of this police service in this time where you're waiting for that kind of final word? Yeah, so... Obviously, policing and law enforcement in general is already a very challenging career choice. There's a lot of stressors that come along with that. Um, this is really simply an unneeded stressor that nobody needs. Um, and um, even for the citizens of Surrey to have them left wondering where we may be going with this, it, it honestly, it isn't fair to them either. So we're hoping for a, a resolution uh, sooner rather than later. Uh, having said that, I know that Mayor Locke has uh, indicated she'll be submitting her report uh, to the province this month. I'm sure they will take their time to review it, but we would hope that uh, um, based on what we've demonstrated, um, the facts that other studies have previously supported the creation of a Surrey Police Service, 
uh, the all-party committee into policing that's indicated that this is the wave of the future for policing in British Columbia, where regionalized policing and a provincial police service are what um, the Liberals, the uh, NDP, and the uh, Green Party have all agreed is the way to go. Uh, we we think that speaks volumes in support of uh, where we are in the uh, in the growth stage of the Surrey Police Service. Uh, so is it your hope then that uh, Mike Farnworth or the, the public safety minister, the, the one who was the one who gave the green light to go ahead with the Surrey Police Service is going to, to stay with that and say, even though it was a campaign promised by the now mayor, that that's the way the province is moving? Yes, that's, uh, um, that is our hope. But I, I do understand completely that he'll uh, take the time to uh, review Mayor Locke's uh, report that she'll be submitting and um, and give it the proper analysis that it deserves. And But at the end of the day, uh, we're very confident that the final result of this will be uh, that the transition will continue. And uh, this is simply um, another bump in the road that we've had to overcome. And... Uh Darren, just one other question about this. As far as this declaration by the union members, what do you do with this information? Or was it was it to, to make it more clear to the current mayor and to the public where the officers, the individual officers are standing on this? Or what do you hope comes from putting this information out there? Um, well, as with uh, our comments leading into the election or when we were, when our opinions or our uh, comments were sought, we're simply here to correct some of the misinformation uh, that is out there. Um, you know, if uh, somebody is uh, indicating as part of their plan that uh, their intention is to absorb 300 sworn officers into the RCMP, um, we feel it's very important to indicate that that isn't going to happen. Um, the RCMP is facing a lot of recruiting struggles. Um, again, I served 25 years with the RCMP, all in British Columbia. I know what the uh, staffing shortages are like. Um, I know that the men and women of the RCMP are working incredibly hard every day to keep their communities safe, uh, but they simply don't have the resources and equipment required for them to do their job effectively. We've offered the RCMP an alternative. They haven't been able to properly resource Surrey for my entire time in the Lower Mainland. Uh, This is an opportunity for them to take resources that don't decide to join the SPS and to bolster the communities where they are currently policing. And that would probably be the best option for them at this point. All right. Uh, Darren Shepard, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for the opportunity. Well, you know, we have been spending a lot of time talking about health care. The health ministers were meeting in Vancouver. We've talked about the new deal with doctors, the concerns of paramedics, wait times in hospital emergency departments, specific, well, in all of the departments. But we often hear about the long waits at BC Children's Hospital as well. So how does Canada compare, though, when we look at our health care system in this country, comparing it with other countries that have similar universal health care systems? That is the focus of a new report. And joining us to talk about the findings is Mackenzie Moyer, a policy analyst with the Fraser Institute. Mackenzie, thank you so much for taking some time with us. Thank you for having me on. Uh, this, uh, as I said, looks at healthcare systems in countries that all have universal health care. So, what specifically were you looking at as far as comparing what is happening in Canada to these other countries? Well, Jill, this study attempts to provide Canadians with an understanding of the value that they get in return for the money that they spend on health care. And what did you find? 
Well, we took a look at 30 different high-income countries, of which all are members of the OECD, and we found that Canada in 2020 uh, ranks number one uh, for spending as a percentage of GDP, coming in at 13.3%. Uh, So oftentimes it's good to rank number one, but my guess is that there's another half to that sentence or another finding that shows that's not exactly where you want to be. Well, this is just it. We have to take a look at both the money that we spend on healthcare in addition to the value that we get in return. So, for example, we can take a look at things like resource availability. And uh, in 2020, we found that um, Canada ranked at 28 out of 30 for the availability of physicians coming in at 2.8 per thousand. And we rank uh, quite low in terms of the number of beds that are dedicated to physical care coming in at 23 out of 28. And and what is Canada doing different then as far as if Canada is spending a lot of money and obviously investing in health care, where are the differences where other countries that maybe aren't spending as much are seeing better uh, availability of resources and better outcomes? Well, the report specifically takes a look at these at this performance. So, for example, when we take a look at other areas, such as the availability of diagnostic technology, we see that Canada ranks near the bottom also for the availability of things like MRI machines. So we see that Canada comes in at 26 to 29 for the availability of MRIs and 27 out of 30 for the availability of CT scanners. Which seems like the number, if we look at the number for MRIs, because that is one area where we often hear the health minister talking about where great progress has been made as far as there are MRI diagnostics or rooms in hospitals that run 24 hours now. And the health minister is often talking about the fact that we're doing so much better when it comes to the wait times and people having access to MRIs. Well, this is also important. We have to take a look at things like utilization of these resources as well. So while Canada does somewhere in the high middle for the number of doctor consultations, we rank 8th out of 27 for that measure, we also come in quite low for things like discharges from hospital, coming in at 26 out of 27, which is near the very bottom. We also somewhat rank somewhere near the middle for things like CT exams and MRI exams, coming in at 12 out of 26 for CT scans and 14 out of 26 for MRI exams. And when we look at this, again, comparing uh, countries that have universal health care, I know it's something that that often um, people don't like talking about or don't like bringing into the conversation. But when you're comparing it with other countries, are you looking at countries that have universal health care but also have a component of private health care? includes a range of different countries, all of which do things slightly different. But the main component for inclusion in this study was whether or not they provided universal access to the population for things like core services. And does it look at the funding models or how things are funded as far as in Canada with funding where you get a certain amount of funding and it's tied to an amount of time rather than tied to the number of procedures and if other countries are doing that differently? Strictly overall spending, and we also provide a per capita measure. Canada is slightly uh, in the middle, uh, high middle for per capita spending coming in at third, sorry, eight out of 30. What does this tell us then as far as if we're looking at other countries that are having better outcomes and again looking at those areas that you've outlined, uh, availability of resources, the use of resources, access, uh, quality uh, and uh, clinical performance. If we're looking at those outcomes, what does it tell us about Canada's spending and, and what we're getting for that spending? Well, we get mixed results. So, for example, when it comes to other spe- like specific uh, procedures, Canada tends to do somewhere... 
decently on for cataract surgery, uh, does seem well for um, provision of coronary artery bypass grafts. But then there are other procedures, for example, such as hip replacements and angioplasties, where Canada ranks quite low on the provision of those services. And does it look at why we see such a discrepancy between those types of services, or is it just looking at the numbers as far as money invested and what we're seeing as far as those numbers? This report is strictly an evaluation of the performance that the system has as it relates to spending. Um, so it, it strictly looks at that as, as a, in a particular snapshot in time. And I think you touched on this or, or mentioned this, and this would be in some of, uh, in, in probably included in the access to these services. But does it also compare wait times for some of those services that you you were listing? It, it, it looks at uh, a general measure for things like uh, access to specialist appointments. So we have a measure here for the number of, like the percentage of Canadians that uh, reported being able to access a specialist appointment within four weeks. We came in at the very bottom of that, uh, 10th out of 10, uh, coming at 38%. Which I'm guessing, while it not to where somebody where a country wants to be, people might not be overly surprised by that, given that we've been talking to specialists on this show, whether it's orthopedic specialists, others saying that they're just overwhelmed. There just aren't enough of them. Well, we also see that Canada came in quite low on the availability of elective surgeries as well. Again, 10th out of 10 uh, coming in at 62% being able to access an elective surgery within four months. And is that kind of the benchmark or is that compared to, if you're saying within four months, is that because uh, elsewhere that's where uh, other countries are able to do that? It's just the the general measure that they've used for this, um, that we got the data from. So it's just a a general measure of four months for all surgeries that they included for that survey. All right. Does anything else stick out to you or were there any other numbers that kind of stood out as a bit of a surprise or or that that, that you weren't expecting? Well, I think this is in line, except for the spending, this is in line with previous years uh, that we've evaluated uh, performance as it relates to spending. I think the biggest um, the biggest change this year, of course, is Canada now ranking number one for spending as a percentage of GDP. Um, and the performance overall seems to be uh, either mixed or, or, uh, or poor, uh, but is in line with, with previous years that we've run this study. All right. Well, thank you so much, Mackenzie Moyer, for joining us and going through those numbers today. Appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Well, I know a lot of people have plans to travel during the holiday season. It is always busy, especially now that people are getting back into traveling and going places. Maybe they haven't gone for the past couple of years. However, the unions that represent airport security screeners are putting out a warning saying that the turnover when it comes to newer employees is extremely high. So we wanted to talk a little bit more about this. Albiexa joins us on the line now. President of the United Steelworkers Local 2009, and that represents airport security screeners at the Abbotsford Airport. Albiexa, thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you, Joe, for inviting me. Uh, How much of a concern is this as far as high turnover of staff? It's it's a big concern. It's a big concern. Uh, I mean, recruitment's always been a problem, and uh, uh, the retention, uh, uh, again, is uh, an equal uh, problem. So you may not know, but uh, there was a summer incentive program where people being offered uh, a bonus if they were coming into work all during the summer. Uh, And immediately when the program was terminated, we had a high degree of absenteeism. Uh, And at some point in time, I think the employer thought that was orchestrated by the union or by the workers and 
Uh, and clearly the evidence showed that uh, people were just burned out uh, from working all the hours because of the lack of staffing. Uh, and, uh, and when the summer incentive program was over, then things kind of went back to normal uh, where people weren't interested in working all these extra hours because they didn't feel that they were getting paid fairly. So I think that there is a concern coming up into the Christmas holidays and all the travel that's anticipated that if, if the screening contractors uh, can't maintain the staffing rates where they need to be, less lines are open, and that's where all the long lineups come in, and then people unfortunately start missing flights. Right. But just to go back to, to something you said so that people were, were burnt out and we did see the absenteeism. And I know we saw that at some of their airports as well. But isn't that more of a, a saying they they would have been burnt out before, but it was they didn't mind as much being burnt out with the summer incentive program with being paid more. But they 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 weren't uh, didn't want to be doing the same work for less pay. Well, I mean, the summer incentive program basically incents people to cancel their vacation, cancel their uh, any, or, or come into work when they're not feeling 100% and all that, where they normally would have taken a day off and all that. That's what the summer incentive program did. So not only people were making sure that they were getting their 40 hours of scheduled time, but many of them were working 20, almost 30 hours of overtime every week, uh, working through their days off and all that, because we didn't have enough staffing uh, regular staffing uh, to keep all three lines open at the Abbotsford Airport. So that's that one issue. The whole issue of recruitment and retention is basically driven by the, the very low pay. Uh, so our members that have got uh, three years of seniority in there make about $22.68 an hour. Uh, and for the important responsibilities they have, making sure that air travel is safe, uh, many don't feel that that uh, is uh, commensurate with, uh, you know, the degree of responsibility. Sure. And what kind of training do you need to, to get that job? Well, it's it's dynamic training. It's it's You go through a series of training, understanding all the safe operating procedures and uh, what to look for. Uh, but the training is continuous. Just about every day they're doing updates uh, on SOPs and what to look for. And, and if you remember, this all started back with 9-11, uh, in 2001, uh, and then we had the shoe bomber in December of that year, and then we had the underwear bomber in 2009. They kept on changing the rules of what these screening officers need to look for. So, for example, the underwear bomber uh, incident in 2009 caused them it caused the new uh, rules around uh, carrying liquid or gels onto the plane. And now you know uh, that you can only have so many milliliters of uh, a substance. Uh, because of what was attempted in 2009. So getting back to your question about training, the training is ongoing. Uh, every day that they're doing uh, modules, uh, uh, they're always doing updates and all that, and that's necessary uh, to keep air travel safe. And for sure, I think nobody um, is, is saying that these aren't important jobs. And of course, we want airports and, and planes and everything uh, to be safe. Has technology changed at all, though, making the jobs more efficient or helping out as far as screening and that kind of thing? No, the technology really hasn't changed in the last decade. Uh, it's just, uh, you know, the the training and the safe operating procedures that are being uh, implemented in the airports. The technology is really about, uh, you know, going through the x-ray machines, uh, both on the baggage that's going into the holes of the plane as well as what's coming on board. Um, the practices are changing all the time to make uh, uh, 
uh, you know, travel safe. And, and I think we've done a good job. We haven't had any catastrophes in the last, uh, you know, almost a decade now uh, because of the work that these people do. And so getting back then to, as you said, recruitment and retention has always been a problem. Is it it's mainly the the hourly pay or the pay that that the screeners are getting? And do you think if that number was bumped up, would it make it much easier to get people not only in those jobs, but staying in those jobs? Well, before we talk about that, we need to talk about what's happened after the pandemic. So before the pandemic, I would think most people would agree uh, that the majority of air travel, not the majority, but the the simple majority uh, of air travel would be very uh, seasoned uh, travelers, business travel for the most part, that kind of knew what was involved when you go through pre-board screening. What we've seen after the pandemic is the, the rate of passengers is increasing all the time, but you're not having these business people who've Uh, learned how to survive on Zoom meetings and aren't traveling as frequently. You're getting people that only travel once a year that aren't familiar. And and the result of that is that the people in the uniform, the screening officers, are the ones that are taking the brunt of the frustration of these people that are now standing in line for an extra hour, uh, you know, having to take their their belts off and their shoes off and empty their pockets. They're not used to that. And they take it out on the screening officers. So the the environment in the workplace has also changed significantly. And when the wages aren't comparable to the responsibilities and the environment that they have to face, uh, people just don't want to work there anymore. They like the idea of going in there, doing the training, wearing the uniform, being an important part of society and ensuring air travel. Uh, but after a while, they become quite frustrated. And I see in the newspaper article this morning, they were talking about the turnover rate being 10% or so. I would say anecdotally, our turnover rate at Abbotsford Airport is probably closer to 25%. Hmm. And that doesn't seem sustainable, does it? No, it doesn't. It's not. Uh, and that's, I mean, clearly that's why CATSA came up with a summer incentive program because they don't pay enough to incent people to come back and be exposed to those conditions uh, on an annual basis. That summer incentive program was uh, comparable to another 5 or $6 an hour pay. Uh, and that's basically what the screening officer is saying that they should be paid. They should be paid somewhere closer to an average or, or even an entry-level government uh, worker. If you kind of look at the, the border guards that perform, I would say, similar duties and all that, they're making like 41 bucks an hour. Uh, is their average uh, wages out there where our screening officers, as I said, are making less than less than $24 an hour. And how long does it te- take? I think you touched on this. How long does it take if you're making that wage, the 2268? How far, how long does it take and how high can you go? Well, it's about three, three years to get up to the top rate. Uh, and then after that, if you are a lead screener and there's basically a lead screener on each line, uh, you get another 12% increase when you're doing the job of lead screener. So, But that's like a handful of people. So you've got maybe six people that are getting the highest rate that takes them up to about uh, 26, 2680, I'd say, is the maximum you can get up to right now. Right. So after three years, then the top rate is, is almost 27 or is 2680 an hour? No, the top rate is like $24 if you take into COLA and uh, a premium they get. Mm-hmm. That's the top rate. There's only a handful of people that get the lead screen rate, which oh. is an extra 12%. And that gets them up to 26 If everybody was up to $26 uh, dollars an hour, uh, that would be a vast improvement that would help them in recruitment and retention.
Uh, and to, to touch on something you said too about people taking their frustrations out on screeners, uh, I was uh, unfortunately I did witness somebody who was just a, a jerk, for lack of a better word, uh, a few weeks ago, and and it struck me as odd because I thought, why on earth are you being a jerk to the the person who really decides whether or not you're going to go through to the next stage in this airport? Well, why would you be a jerk to anybody? But if you're going to be that way, why why would you do it to somebody who kind of wields that power? But how big of a deal is it? Because I, I always, and maybe I was naive in thinking this, I was always thinking that, that people know better than to be rude to a security screener. Well, it was awful during the pandemic when basically, although it was the airport authority's responsibility to enforce the mask mandate, uh, you know, people were taking it out on the screening officers because they're visible, they got a uniform on. And when somebody, for example, didn't have a mask on, uh, people that were adhering to the mask policy were going to the screening officer and saying, hey, you got to do something about kick that person out of the line or take them out of the lounge or whatever. And, of course, our screening officers have got nothing to do with the mask mandate. That was the airport authority who were kind of invisible during the pandemic. Uh, and once again, as I said before, you have these kind of rookie travelers that are coming coming through and wondering why uh, whose fault is it that they're standing in line for for an extra hour whose fault is it that uh, you know they're barely making their plane or in danger of missing their plane they take it out on the uh, the people with the uniforms uh, and that's the screening officers and it's not their fault no, of, of course not. Uh, so we're hearing as well from Katza saying that uh, things are great. They've achieved pre-pandemic staffing levels at the major airports and telling people not to worry going into the holiday season that things are going to be okay. Uh, is that not the case, though? Do you think there are going to be waits and it's not going to be quite as rosy as they're saying? Well, the, the latest stats I've heard is that uh, they're only, we're only up to about 80 to 85% of what travel was before the pandemic. And if they're saying that the staffing rates are the same as they were before, then please explain to me then why people are having to show up to the airport an extra hour early and why there are these long lineups that we never saw before the pandemic. Something doesn't equate. And, and so if the wages were bumped up, like you said, and and were closer to that lead, the current lead screener hour, uh, you do think it would be easier then to retain people or people would be more likely to stay in these positions? Yes, I do. And and that's what our members are telling us, too. A lot of them are just get frustrated and saying, for the amount of money I'm making, I can go find a job somewhere else. I'll, I'll get a job in the sawmill where my starting wages are 32 bucks an hour uh, for doing cleanup. It's just it's just not worth the hassle. And uh, I mean, it doesn't sound here we are. It's it's November 10th. So I'm I'm doubting that we're going to have any resolution or anything solved as things get busier in the next few weeks. Well. The, the one positive thing, our members at Abbotsford have been working for a year and a half without a collective agreement. And just today, we've got some dates secured in the next couple of weeks. Uh, and we're hoping to have everything done before the Christmas travel really ramps up. All right. Well, we will check back in with you. Albiexa, as always, thank you so much for joining us. And thanks for bringing us up to date on this. My, my pleasure. Anytime. Well, it has been chilly out the last few days, and while some people maybe don't like the cold, want to escape it, others are ready to embrace more snow falling in the mountains. And that is some good news if you're planning on going to the Big White Ski Resort because it is going to be opening a little bit earlier this year. Michael J. Ballingall joins us on the line now, Senior Vice President at Big White Ski Resort. Michael, thank you so much for being with us. 
Pleasure to be here. I'm uh, probably sitting in the highest office in B.C. right now at 5,500 feet above sea level. It's a beautiful day. (laughs) Very, very nice. And it sounds like conditions are very good and uh, you'll be having that early opening. Well, all that rain that Vancouver got last week, we got it as champagne powder up here in the Okanagan, as we like to say. And uh, 114 centimeters fell out of the sky. Our owner looked at me and said, well, you better get everybody ready because we're going early. So believe it or not, we uh, turned on the uh, training and we're training 617 staff as we speak because we're opening next Thursday. Uh, And so you say you're training staff. So was this a bit of a a surprise in that uh, there aren't staff ready or or you kind of have to to jump into gear even more so? Uh, Most of the staff weren't even here. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're phoning the ones on the prairies and, and back in Newfoundland and Australia, New Zealand. And, you know, when, when's the earliest you can be here and uh, changing flights, as we all know, costs a lot of money. So we're going to open up with skeleton staff, but we, you know, we're not opening up the entire mountain. We'll have about half the mountain going on Thursday, the 17th, and then more by the weekend. But, uh, you know, frontline cooks, uh, they're working in the kitchens, they're preparing the sauces, and they're preparing everything for uh, for the opening day. So it's, it's an exciting time for everybody. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that as well, because we've talked with so many people, especially in the restaurant industry, about staffing shortages and difficulties getting workers. So it sounds like that's something, well, you've had to deal with that as well. Yeah, and, and you know, the one thing that you have in the mountains, and, and this goes for all mountain resorts, it's sexy. You know, kids from around the world, we, we, have, we have kids from, you know, Australia, New Zealand, UK, that, that's, that's the given. But there's also Ireland, Germany, Czechoslovakia, Denmark, Sweden, France, South Africa. You know, it, it, BC has a reputation around the world as being the mecca for snow sports. And, and a resort like Big White, like Silver Star, Sun Peaks, Whistler, um, we get the pick of the crop because they, they want to come here and work. And our government has uh, helped us out with the visa program. It was tough the last two years. But uh, I would say that uh, we'll probably be about 70% uh, staffed up for opening day. And then once the, uh, once the other staff arrive, it's a quick training program and away we go again. And when you mentioned the visa program and uh, that's been ironed out because uh, I know your business, other businesses as well, that's been, that has been a bit of an obstacle. Oh, we've been knocking on doors and banging on tables. And, you know, it's been a tough, tough two years for the resort businesses. Um, but, you know, Mother Nature for the ski business has been kind to us. I mean, this time last year, let's remember, we were in the middle of um, floods in, in, in the Fraser Valley. Roads were closed. And, and now, you know, when we announced last week that we were opening early, Vancouver has just, the phones have been ringing off the wall. And, and Vancouver's coming in, in record numbers for this time of year. Um, to come and play and slide in the snow, and uh, we're hoping that uh, that we'll see that continue on. It's you know, Christmas is just about booked out. New Year's is just about booked out. BC Family Day is looking very good. That's not just not for Big White. That's that's for all the resorts here in the interior. We're hearing very positive things. So British Columbians uh, want to come slide in the snow again. <laughs> they do. Uh, is this the earliest you've opened? No, we've opened as early as October 29th in 2006. This is the earliest we've opened since 2015. And, uh, it, it, you know, our, we're a family-owned, locally-owned, family-run business, and our promise has always been that we'll open as soon as snow permits. And you can tell just from the economy down in the valley, at, you know, Sport Check in Kelowna is the first or second busiest sport check in Canada. The only one that beats us is in downtown Toronto, 
and and it's again beating their numbers. So you know, fresh air experience, the one board shop, they're all reporting record sales, and that just bodes well for everybody. Kids at school, you can see them with their big white pom pom dukes on, and you know, it's it's an exciting time here in the interior because you can either go to Mexico or you can go skiing at Big White, and a lot of people are choosing Big White this year. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what about housing for staff and staffing issues? Because I know that's also uh, there's not a ton of housing anywhere really, especially in resort communities. So how have you been able to tackle that? Jill, it's a nightmare. <laughs> it's just been the worst. You know, and, and it, it, when I say that, there's, there's over 16,000 beds on Big White, but a lot of, about 25% of our real estate changed hands uh, over the course of the pandemic. So we used to rent a house uh, from Mr. and Mrs. Joe Front Porch, and we'd put 20 kids in there, a five-bedroom home. They sold that house, and the new owners want to use it. And uh, when they're not using it, no kidding. Um, So we had to build more staff accommodation. We put some bunk beds in rooms and, you know, we've done our best, but we're going to be short on beds this year. There'll be some kids commuting um, from town, but uh, we're not going to be 100% staffed up. How long is the commute? 45 minutes okay. from, from Kelowna. But still, the, the, there's a bed-based problem in Kelowna as well. It's, it's not like that's the solution. It's expensive uh, to, to rent a, a one-bedroom, two-bedroom uh, accommodation, whether it's on Big White or in Kelowna. So we've had to up our wages. We've had to pay them more and more benefits. You know, they get 50% off food. They get a ski pass. Um, they get other benefits. And uh, it, it's just kids like to come skiing. And they like to come work in the snow. And it's, it's really a, a rite of passage for, for kids from uh, Australia and New Zealand. And, you know, we've, I've been doing this since 1985. And, you know, every year we get five to 600 kids from all over the world. And what is interesting now is we're starting to see them, kids that have worked here 10, 15 years ago, return with their kids <laughs> and their young kids. And, and that tradition is pretty cool. Oh, absolutely. And, and you mentioned the discount on food. And I know you can mention that in passing. But if you're a, a young person, like you said, doing this, it's almost like a rite of passage. That makes a big difference when you're talking about your bills and trying to pay your rent and making ends meet. Well, we know that if we're going to run a great resort, um, we know that we have to subsidize their food, subsidize their accommodation, give them, give them free skiing because they're, they're going to leave here with a great experience. But the, the staff on the mountain are our number one customers in the bars and restaurants. The dance floors are full every night and uh, that some of them play in bands and some of them are working as bartenders or waitresses that are ski instructors during the day. The, the resort ski business has really not changed over the years. It's just got busier and it's got more sophisticated. Well, and how nice is it to be talking about this as well and gearing up for an early opening this season? Because I think one of the last times we talked, it must have been two years ago now, but we were talking because that video had surfaced of people who were dancing and partying while we were under COVID restrictions. So how much things have changed? Yes, I I can remember when we we talked about isolation and you had to stay in your room for 15 days and we'd give you three meals a day. It it definitely has changed. But, you know, we're we're still very cautious. Some of our plexiglass is up in some of the indoor areas. We're recommending that people, if they feel uncomfortable, wear a mask when you go inside. But, you know, as as Dr. Bonnie has always said, it's better to be outside than inside in the great outdoors of British Columbia. Um, There's not a better place to, you know, whether you're walking on, the seawall in Vancouver or you're up at Grouse Mountain or you're in the interior or you're over in the Kootenays, 
staying in British Columbia is a pretty good place to hang out when there's a worldwide pandemic. Yeah, no, it's it's not a bad place at all. And like you said, there will still be people. I know there have been conversations being had today, well, I think almost every day probably, about masks and wearing masks inside and such. And it does seem, and it sounds like what you're saying too, is it's going to be personal choice and how people feel they need to keep themselves safe. Yeah, and, and the one thing that we really promote up at Big White is you know, people don't make other people feel uncomfortable because they are wearing a mask. You have no idea what they're going through. The one thing about standing in line, wearing a mask, getting on a chairlift with somebody else, you know, the conversations happen. People meet other people from all over the world. It's one of the greatest things about skiing in British Columbia is you do meet people from all over the world in a sport that you love to participate in. And uh, we're just really out there promoting that. Uh, be nice to each other. Be kind. And uh, everyone will get a chance to ski in the Okanagan Champagne Powder. <laughs> All right. And just to recap, so uh, a week from today, the resort's going to open. And, and again, what can people expect if they're coming up and they want to take advantage of this early opening? Well, for your listeners, the lift tickets are going to be 50% off. And uh, so, so that's, that'll be the cheapest lift ticket that you'll get anywhere at, on any mountain. You know, we have rooms, slopeside rooms, starting at $79. The Bullet will be open. The Gondola will be open. The Ridge Rocket will be open. Um, you know, it, it, it's just as we get more snow, we'll open more of the mountain. But it takes a lot of grooming machines and a lot of track packing to get going. A lot of staff needs to be trained. But Mother Nature gave us a big kiss on the lips, so we'll be ready to go. All right. Sounds good. I know, uh, as you said, a lot of people will be looking forward to that. Uh, Michael Ballingall, thank you so much for joining us and for talking more about this today. And to you and your listeners, happy Remembrance Day for tomorrow. All right. Sounds good. Thank you again so much.